Hi. Uh, welcome to the Classical Liberal Project. My name is Danielle. I'll be your host. I'm here with Jonathan Casey. How's it Joshua. going? I'm glad to finally get this going. And Joshua Eagle. Hey, Danielle. Thanks for having me. <clears throat> and we have a special guest today, uh, Chase Oliver. Let's bring him on in here. Hey, hey Chase. <clears throat> hey, guys. Happy to hear from y'all and uh, get this podcast going. Inaugural episode. This is going to be yeah. black. <laughs> I, I have had, for the past year, I have resisted calls to start a podcast, but I can finally claim to be a real libertarian now. So, yeah, I was going to yeah. say, you can't call yourself a real libertarian unless you have a podcast. It's That's true. That's Ex exactly. And who better to start it off than the uh, man of the last election, Chase? I, mm -hmm. I, uh, I, I know that all libertarians were really glad that we had one we had one candidate who really stuck it in the craw of the duopoly by forcing a runoff in, in Georgia. What was, I mean, did, were you expecting to cause a runoff when it did happen? What was your kind of emotions on that? Oh yeah. Well, uh, I, I kind of expected that a runoff was going to probably occur. Uh, you know, I campaigned vigorously with the, with the intention of causing a runoff, you know, uh, best case scenario would have been to have me in the runoff. Right. But I knew no matter what I did, if I campaigned really hard and put out a, positive message uh voters were going to respond and uh, i'm glad i was you know i was the only candidate to cause a runoff in our field of seven we had a really strong field of candidates this time around uh you know and including uh you know ryan graham for lieutenant governor you know he did a great job as well but uh overall you know forcing that runoff certainly uh upset the right people in the duopoly and it caused them to have to wait a few weeks to uh figure out which of their wing is going to actually control uh, that Senate seat. So, uh, you know, any, anything to slow down the gears of government and also upset the apple cart a little bit uh, is a good thing, even though uh, I, I'm an advocate for ranked choice voting. So, you know, the whole time I was campaigning, I said, I, I want to cause a runoff, but I want to cause an instant runoff so that we're not wasting taxpayer money. Um, so that, that was kind of my message throughout and even after. So I'm actually a little bit curious, and I think our audience is probably in the same boat because I'm in Tennessee. I, as you know, I'm not in Georgia, but I know Georgia is a unique election system compared to other states. Can you tell us a little bit more about just kind of how the Georgia election system works? Is it every statewide can, uh, candidate could cause a runoff? Um, yeah, every, every election can cause a runoff okay. uh, in terms of like congressional elections, any of them. If uh, we do not have plurality voting in our state, uh, if you do not get over 50%, the uh, top two vote getters will compete in a one-on-one -on -one runoff uh, to where you know one candidate or the other will get the most votes between two. Uh, and so it allows third parties, you know, unfortunately we have terrible ballot access. So we only have statewide ballot access for us libertarians uh, without spending a lot of money to gather signatures. But ideally, if we had a better ballot access situation, third parties and independents would be able to compete and go to voters and say, hey, you don't have to be scared to vote for me first because if I don't get the top votes, you can always pick from the lesser of two evils later in the runoff. And again, ideally we would want that to be instant so that way we don't have that voter drop off that happens uh, every time we do have a runoff. Uh, both Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock got less votes in the runoff than they did in the initial election due to that drop off. And so yeah. we wanna make sure that those voters are staying put and able to make their second choice right then and there. Mm -hmm. How, if, they how, to, if they want to, a lot of libertarians just chose not to vote in the runoff. How much does that cost taxpayers? I'm, I'm curious. I think you probably, if all people, we probably have that number. Do you know what? It's in like the tens part? of millions of dollars uh, oh to, to rerun mm -hmm. all the elections, and then you also have to think about all the numbers of ads 
and that kind of stuff. And it's just like another tens of millions of dollars of political ads on all of our YouTube feeds and our cable boxes. And it's just uh, basically nothing we want to see for an extra few weeks. We, I, I think most voters in Georgia would prefer to just wrap it up while also maintaining an over 50% choice. Uh, you know, we don't want somebody with 46% of the vote or something to be representing 100% of the people. Like, that's not even majority democracy. That's even worse. Like, that's tyranny of the minority and hardcore. <laughs> you, you talked about having a message, um, you know, that resonated with voters. Why did, how did you craft your message? What did you look at? What, were the, what was the feedback that made you choose uh, the message that you ended up with? Well, uh, you know, initially, you, know, you have to look at what is really important to the average voter. And at this time, uh, it was certainly inflation. People were starting to feel the inflationary aspects of our overspending. And so that, of course, you know, it's the economy, stupid, is like the, the mantra, right? But that's, of course, usually the top thing that was in voters' minds. Um, and the other thing, particularly in this midterm election, uh, was the Dobbs decision. And as a pro-choice uh, person, I was able to go right out and defend my decision to be both pro-choice, but also defending the Hyde Amendment, that I don't believe federal dollars should be spent on abortions because of how contentious the issue is and how morally divisive it is. And so um, I was able to very confidently uh, defend both bodily autonomy as well as uh, fighting spending, which is creating this inflation when we print dollars out of thin air. So those were the two issues that I think voters were most receptive to. And I was somebody who was able to shoot that liberty message right out to as many people as possible. I wish I could have campaigned in more places uh, because if you look at it, we have tons of counties in Georgia. Side note, it's because of government. Uh, somebody decided when our state was being formed that you couldn't be more than one day's horse ride away from your county seat of government. Hmm. And so we have all these small counties uh, because no one ever thought there'd be anything faster than a horse or any other way to communicate other than face to face. So uh, due to the lack of uh, uh, foresight there, we have a bunch of counties. And if you look at the map of them, any counties where I went and campaigned, went and knocked on doors, did events, did outreach, uh, minus one, which was Fulton County in Atlanta, which is the bluest county in the state, uh, I did better than my percentage, like my overall percentage. The states that I wasn't able to hit, I did worse. And that's proof positive that wherever I was able to actually touch voters and see them and talk to them, I outperformed my average. And so it, it, I think that was a, that's a good sign that I was doing the right thing. I just didn't have the ability to do it in as many places as I wanted. So I'm curious, and uh, Danielle, I don't want to cut you off too because I feel like you know hijacked. But real quick question: um, you, when you were talking to voters, obviously, uh, you know, I think you're probably one of the most articulate uh, spokespeople that we have in the LP, like hands down. And I think you do a really great job of kind of like communicating libertarian ideas in a way that resonates with regular people. And I'm curious, do you have anything that really stuck out to you when you were talking to voters in Georgia that were that was like you know, like a libertarian issue or a classical liberal value that really like resonated with the voter base? Was there anything that stuck out to you um, that you learned when you were talking to voters in that whole exercise? Well, you know, um, let me just say this. Uh, one of the one of the values of classical liberals is uh, empathy for one another. And that's, I kind of think of nearly a universal value. When you sit down and talk with people, they care about other people. They care about their community. They care about their families. And that is actually a value that classical liberalism quite uh, quite eloquently puts into the political arena. It, it, it requires us to care about the rights of people just beyond ourselves because those rights are universal and we have to be making sure that rights are being universally applied. Um, and, and free from government and force and fraud and coercion and violence. And so I think when you sit down with people, really when you when you 
really get down to the nitty gritty beyond just political policy and differences. When you just start talking to people on a human level, uh, you, you find that people's hearts are a little bit more, uh, you know, open-minded and liberal. Even people who would identify as conservatives, deep down, they really are just trying to care for their families. They're trying to care for their communities in a way that maybe we disagree with. But that's a that's a universal liberal value that I think as libertarians, as classical liberals, we should be making sure that we're putting forward in our messaging. Because when you talk about messaging that resonates and when you say how are we going to articulate the liberty message in a way that that binds to people and that connects to them and that makes them invested, we have to be thinking about an empathic message, a message that is thinking about not just our own selves, but how are we going to apply the, the concepts of liberty to other people in our communities that maybe don't look like us, don't live like us, don't practice the same faith as us. Because when we do that, when we start saying treat others as we want to be treated, a universal rule across most philosophies and faiths and religion, when we apply that to the libertarian message, we are stronger because yeah. the other two parties actively try to divide. They actively try to break up populations and divide them. And I think a message like that is something that's unifying. And if we're going to be breaking barriers and if we're going to be growing to a point where we're having an impact, pushing the Overton window and winning, winning elections to force public policy in a direction that is more liberty oriented, that's what we have to keep in mind. And so that that's something that as speaking to voters that really rings true as a true universal value for most everyone. We just have to break through and communicate it in a way that they understand. If that makes sense. No, well said. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Well, so that kind of brings me, it brings up the question in my mind of, you know, when you, when you have non-empathetic messaging coming from other channels, how do you handle that? How do you look at that? Cause sometimes, you know, not everyone's, not everyone's going to have an easygoing time of it. You're going to have challenges. Uh, so when somebody comes up to you and says, well, why does, why does this libertarian say something this, this, this way? Why do, why are they so mean? Why are they unempathetic? Why are they, you know, trying to troll people. What what does that do to your campaign? How do you handle that as a candidate? How did you handle it as a candidate? Can well, I can I also add on to the question to just say in general, libertarians don't always agree on things. So even just disagreements in general, maybe as well. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, you know, I can't ever pretend to represent every single libertarian out there. I think that's an impossibility. You know, I think as a candidate, you know, I, I have an exploratory committee right now. Uh, we can talk about that in a little bit. So I do think, broadly speaking, if you're a national candidate, you have to speak to as many libertarian values as you can. But um, you can't defend every person's speech. And I won't absolutely do that. I think people are individuals. And if, a, if an individual or a candidate, an affiliate, whatever, comes out with bad messaging, we should not be afraid to reject it and say, this is not what I believe. And I believe that Democrats and Republicans are very easily able to do that. They're able to call out their black sheep and and ostracize themselves from them. Uh, you know, I think about like the fact that, you know, in Illinois, they had a, a literal neo-Nazi run for as, and he won the Republican nomination in some blue district that no Republicans ever run in. And immediately you had every Republican in Illinois saying, ah, this guy does not stand for me. I don't care that he has an R next to his name. I don't care that he won a primary uh, and then he managed to squeak through and, and do his thing. Uh, he does not represent us. And I'm able to, if, if, if there's something that comes out that I feel is like truly egregious or something that comes to me, I have, I'm very comfortable in saying I don't agree with that stuff. And that's not the kind of liberty that I want to fight for because frankly, that's just going to divide people more. And it's just yelling into an echo chamber. Edge lording is, it's like a drug. It feels really good because like you get that immediate like response from the people who agree with you. But you never really think about how is this playing to people who don't yet agree with you, yep. that you want to agree with you. And if, if we are not making that messaging, 
you know, as a party, we have to be putting messaging out there that is not just like, well, you must already know. And if you don't, you're an idiot because that just makes people go, well, they're calling me an idiot. And like, that's mm -hmm. not going to grow people. Nobody wants to hang out with somebody who's smug. And we have to be willing to sit down and understand that not everybody is going to be just like us all the time. And not everybody came to libertarianism overnight. We didn't go from zero, you know, we didn't go from zero to anarchist or minarchist or whatever. We made a progression and people grow. And so we just have to be willing to open the doors to people who broadly agree that the government does too much and it harms people. Uh so one of the things that I know you've heard a million times, because I've heard it as a county chair and as a state chair, um, is the whole, you know, we're in a two-party system. I wouldn't vote libertarians because libertarians can't win, right? Like in some states, actually in Georgia, I think it's less relevant because of the runoff system. So you actually mm -hmm. have that going for you. But at least in states like mine, like Tennessee, that's just, you know, it's just the nature. You hear that all the time. How do you address that question? Um, like, how do you answer that question? Person. Yeah. The first thing I always tell people is, is the only way anyone doesn't win who's a Republican or, or the only one anybody does win who's a Republican or, or not a Republican or Democrat. Though. The only way a libertarian wins or an independent wins is for people to vote for them. And you have to understand that, yeah, uh, you know, you might not win this race, but if you can start the change, it's a gradual thing. And I have to explain that to some people sometimes, you know, like uh, the other part about it is you are making a message. If enough of you guys vote libertarian, your Republican or your Democratic Party, what have you, is going to start being a little more libertarian. Um, and, and uh, you know, this is another reason, and, and to get rid of that spoiler effect, this is another reason why I think third parties and independents need to become advocates for ranked choice voting or approval voting or for something beyond plurality. Because here's the thing, if we have ranked choice voting, they cannot say that we are coming in to spoil. We are coming in to participate. We are coming in to put our voice into the body politic and when we have a situation where we are not merely spoiling to their, you know, use their language, but participating, having them come to us and saying, here's why candidate Democrat or candidate Republican should be the second choice for you libertarians. When we do that, when we, when we fight for those kinds of things, we remove that real fear. Right now, there is a real fear from voters. And what we have to do is we have to present a principled alternative to say this system is broken. And the only way you're going to change it is to throw a wrench into it. And maybe you don't win the race, but what you do is you force them to wake up and change their behavior. You know, um, changing the Overton window is a real thing. I like to tell libertarians that just because we haven't won office doesn't mean we haven't won ideas. Since 1971, how many more people can legally consume cannabis in this country? How many more people uh, have um, stood up against war during the anti-war movements of the Iraq war? Like they took the lessons that were learned from Vietnam and applied them. Uh, how many, how much more, you know, uh, free and lower is like some of the corporate taxation that happens in this country for people to start a business like throughout the eighties, that was an idea that was a broadly libertarian idea that happened just because some other non-libertarian things have happened. Doesn't mean that there aren't great movements towards human liberty that have happened because libertarians have pushed the idea. The analogy I like to use is, uh, you know, when you have a river, right, there's a stream that had to carve the river ahead of time. That's what libertarians are. We are the stream that carves the path and later the river of popular opinion follows us. But we have to be there ahead of time carving the path. If we're not there speaking our principles and being loud about it, no one will ever come to us and no one will ever come to our ideas. But if we are there and present and principled and being empathic and honest and positive, we can affect even the two parties to an extent. And so, you know, 
that's what we should be doing. And that's why we're in this. And ultimately, we want to win. But if our ideas win, you know, at the end of the day, even if our candidates don't win, that's still a good thing. I was on a podcast last night talking about Ron Paul in the 80s who ran as a libertarian, right? And um, I, I'm sure you've seen this clip, Chase, and I'm sure, Jonathan, you've probably seen this too, the Morton Downey Jr. clip with him talking about the drug war and getting yelled at to basically saying things that are now considered common, you know, ex commonly accepted truths, right? Uh, that yep. prohibition doesn't work, that it actually increases like, uh, you know, drug addiction rates and all that stuff, so. Well said. And, and if we didn't have a libertarian like Paul at the time willing to go in front of an unfriendly audience to speak that message, uh, it might not have gotten heard. And so we, the lesson I learned from that is libertarians can't be afraid to kind of jump into the lion's den. Yeah. I ran for Congress in 2020 for John Lewis's seat, the bluest mm. district in Atlanta. Uh, I was the libertarian among six other, five Democrats and one independent who basically was left of the Democrats. And so uh, I competed in over like, well, almost two dozen forums. It was all on Zoom because it was during the pandemic. But I gave a lot of Democrats their first chance of ever hearing a libertarian. And a lot of the times, one of the things I noticed is uh, we're like the Brady Bunch, right? All the candidates and the hosts. And, you know, people are just getting used to Zoom, especially some of these older folks who aren't used to it. And so they're nodding their head along, not realizing that everybody sees them nodding as I'm talking. <laughs> and at one point, one of the candidates had his microphone off. He was unmuted. And I was saying something and he just said to whoever was in the room with him, this kid's got the right idea. <laughs> and I said, I do have the right idea, you know? Um, and, and so like, I think a lot of people were very excited to, to hear that message for the first time. Like, Oh, there's somebody other than the Republicans who can actually compete with these Democrats and ideas. Um, you know, I had to be afraid. I was jumping into groups like the young college black Democrats of Atlanta. It's like basically, you know, uh, a group full of Democratic voters that pretty much are only conditioned to vote Democrat. And they got to hear from a libertarian. Mm. That's awesome. That now, awesome. Speaking, speaking of that, you spent the past weekend, I think, just uh, campaigning through the, I guess not technically campaigning, but speaking to voters this past week. Uh, how, what was that like campaigning in the South, you know, post Jim Crow South uh, on MLK weekend? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, let's say I was exploring the region and not technically campaigning because I technically only have an exploratory committee. I'm still communicating with libertarians about what they are looking for in a 2024 candidate. And if, then if that if I match that profile and if I think we can form the organization to really make an impact. Um, but, yeah, part of that is traveling around and speaking with people. And so I just put uh, 1100 miles on my Toyota Corolla driving around. Uh, uh, I drove through Georgia. Alabama, a little bit through just very tip of North Florida and, and Mississippi, uh, speaking with voters. And uh, it was actually very, very cool to be campaigning through the Deep South uh, on MLK Week and especially through uh, Alabama because I got a chance to go through uh, not only the Black Belt of Alabama, which is a, a rural area of Alabama that is majority black uh, and is a you know, Portia Shepard, who is a wonderful libertarian in the area, she took me out to her church and allowed me uh, in the church, allowed me a few minutes to speak to the congregation after about the concept of liberty. And um, it was great. You know, I, I got to have many conversations there but, and then drive on out to uh, Selma, Alabama. Um, they recently got hit by a tornado. So if anybody wants to help out and do some volunteerism, send some money to the folks of Selma to rebuild out there. But I did get to go by the Edmund Pettus Bridge, which is uh, if you're not familiar it is a bridge where uh, uh, civil rights protesters marched across that bridge in an effort or attempted to march across that bridge rather 
yep. in an effort to fight for voting rights. And they were turned away and beaten back and abused and uh, oppressed by the police of Alabama at the time. And that included John Lewis, who uh, literally got his skull cracked open by a police baton for liberty. And if that's not fighting for freedom, I don't know what is. And, uh, and so I, I felt the need to go there. Uh, you can really feel the history and the atmosphere in the area. And then I made my way on to Birmingham, which of course is the, you know, the uh, sites, many civil rights issues. I was at a park that was literally across the street from a church bombing that had happened at the time. Um, and then uh, I got to spend my time speaking with libertarians about the civil rights era. And really when you think about it, when you hear from these people who lived during the time, particularly uh, African-American people who lived there during the time, uh, you understand what real organization for freedom looks like, what real fighting using nonviolent, non-compliant resistance looks like, like viscerally. And when you yeah. hear them talk about this, it's very inspiring. And I think it should inspire all libertarians to think about how we can just beyond the political realm, organize ourselves in a nonviolent, non-compliant way to reject bad government and to reject abusive government. And so uh, it, it was really, really inspiring to go through the region. As somebody who's a lifelong Southerner, you know, I have a healthy respect uh, for the struggle for, for civil rights uh, in this country. And I think it's something that libertarians should take lessons on and, uh, and move forward with. Uh, and, I, and I think we could have real impact in the South, particularly with black voters, if we made that a hallmark and we wore that on our sleeve. Um, and so... Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was a great, great trip. Now, speaking of your exploratory committee, um, what is something that you maybe learned from your campaign or maybe you could talk about your campaign organization and what would you change or how would you do it differently on a larger scale for, for a national campaign if you were to do it? Yeah, so uh, comparing and contrasting with the Senate campaign, uh, one thing I didn't focus on as hard during the Senate campaign uh, was fundraising. And that is particularly because I knew the main way I was going to be breaking through because of just how big the state was, like just the fundraising, uh, you know, the, the difference in fundraising. This is the most highly funded race for the Democrats and one of the highest funded races for the Republicans in the country. Hmm. Um, the only way I was going to have an impact was to break through using media and actually door knocking retail politicking. And both of those, you know, uh, Television media is too expensive for, you know, it was not within my fundraising limit. What I could do is I could get a whole lot of literature printed and knock on thousands of doors, which I did. Um, and, uh, and then also try to press release the hell out of the campaign. I sent a lot of press releases out. I had a wonderful media person in Amber Howell. She was our former secretary at the state level here in Georgia. And she was keeping me constantly helping to send out press releases. And then anytime we got even a nibble of media, she followed up and made sure that I got to speak to them. So because of that, I spoke, spoke to press all through Georgia, national press, and even international press uh, when I was out protesting the debate that didn't include me in Savannah. So I got to speak to a lot of news networks uh, because she made sure that I was in front of the right people at the right time. And so that is something I want to continue. But the fundraising aspect, I am now in the process of trying to get people to help donate to this exploratory effort because I'm now traveling across the country. You're literally putting fuel in the tank of that 1,100 miles I drove if you're donating. Um, it is all going towards traveling, meeting with libertarians and hearing from them, getting the feedback. But, um, you know, that and I'm working a full-time job. So it's like 
I, I'm, you know, it's, it is a, it is an effort. I am not an independently wealthy person. So any effort that people can help with the campaign, I, I do want to free plug myself. Now, uh, if they can go to votechaseoliver.com, even if you can't give any money, if you can throw your email address in there, so that way you just know when I'm in town and say, hello, I love meeting people. Uh, do that because I, I would enjoy getting to shake each and every person's hand. It's, it's one of the things I love doing most at national conventions is meeting libertarians from across the country and getting to know those people that you know on Twitter or Facebook, but in real life. Yeah. I've, I've had a glimpse at your schedule. And so I know you are meeting, you are going all over the country, uh, meeting different uh, counties, state levels, all, I, all up and down. So I think you're coming to Tennessee, I've been told, right, within the next two months as well. So I actually just planned out the Tennessee. It's Tennessee and North Carolina in the same weekend. So Beautiful. like I'm going to be I'm going to be ping ponging between the two states. So uh, I think I'll see you on in a week and a half, I think. Yes, so. I'll be uh, I'll be in your neck of the woods in like a week and a half. I'm doing so let me just put it this you're way. You're busy. <laughs> I went to South Carolina, Indiana. Uh, I just got back through Mississippi, Alabama. I'll be doing Florida twice next month, DC, Virginia, uh, Arizona, Texas, Tennessee in March, North Carolina in March. Of course, I'll be at the Georgia convention in May, and I encourage people to come to the Georgia convention. We're going to have a hell of a lot of fun down here. But, you know, I'm going to be trying to be in as many states as humanly possible. Um, you know, that's so we, kind of the nature of this thing. We've got to set the baseline now, Chase. How many miles do you have in your Corolla? We're going to ask again in six months. <laughs> oh, I'll have to go look at the exact mileage. But yeah, so far I just put, a, uh, you know, uh, 1,144 uh, in one weekend. And I'm just a, a smidge over like, uh, I'm just a smidge under 160,000 miles on the thing rather. So dedication. Uh, I love it. I, I Hey man, you got to put the miles on and I have no problem doing that. That's another thing that I will say. If uh, I were to end up the nominee, that would definitely contrast me with the old farts who are running in the Republican and Democratic Party. Do you think Joe Biden's ever driven a thousand miles in the last 30 <laughs> years? He'd fall asleep at the wheel. And I don't think, you know, I don't think Trump's really driven that much either. So, uh, you know, th that's something that's different. I actually have the youthful exuberance of somebody who who can fight and uh, and campaign across the country as opposed to falling asleep, standing up like our current commander in chief. Mm -hmm. uh, so, I've got oh, yeah, you ride a bike. <laughs> a quick question because it kind of ties into what we're talking about reaching out to libertarians trying to get their you know trying to win the nomination for the libertarian party what would you tell libertarians who disagree with you on abortion or open borders or some of these other issues why why wish why should they get behind you um you know clearly in the libertarian party there's there's factionalism you know kind of people going at each other a little bit why should people who disagree with you on a lot of these issues get behind you yeah, let me speak to the factionalism first, and I'll speak to the individual policy differences next. As far as factionalism goes, um, I'll be real with you. You know, I was in the room in Reno, and let's just say I was on the losing side of a lot of the votes that happened in that room. Here's the truth of it. Even though I was on the losing side of a lot of those votes, I wish the people who won each and every one of those votes the best in their choices and in their decisions. And I hope that the party is going to function really well with the slate of people who won. And what we got was a slate of really one faction winning. And I just don't think no matter what faction in the party that is, if we have a one faction running things, it's going to lead to more division and more like hurt feelings because we don't really have a voice on the board. And people feel like they just don't have a voice. And I encourage people to understand that if I were to be a candidate in 2024, I would be one of somebody that has everybody having a voice. And that includes the people who currently are in charge of the party. I want them to contribute. I want their activism. I want their energy because the only way we are going to compete with the duopoly is if every one of us stop fighting each other and start fighting outward. 
that doesn't mean there aren't real differences and there aren't real disagreements within the party, right? Like that's that to pretend otherwise is lying to ourselves. But in terms of a presidential campaign, if I were to be the candidate, I would want to make sure that I'm not representing just one faction or another. Um, you know, I welcome, hey, uh, I'm on the classical liberal podcast right now. Um, you know, I that doesn't mean that you guys are the only people that I'm thinking about as I'm doing this. And the only person that I'm listening to are the only people that I want to hear from. I would love to hear from all of you. you know, we have several other caucuses in the party and I welcome them. Some of them got me blocked on Twitter. I don't care. I still want to represent them. I still want to fight for their liberty. I still want to fight for a principled message that's going to break through that they can be proud of at the end of the day. I am not some Johnny come lately. I've been a libertarian in name in the party for about a decade. Even before then, I was, I've was i been voting libertarian since 2010. Before then, I was an anti-war activist who fought hard against war and the wars in Iraq because I, because I, and fought for human liberty because I thought human rights are, are for everyone. So even before I called myself a libertarian and understood all of the concepts of it, broadly speaking, I was one. And I have fought for this party. I have been at every level of this party from local to state to national, trying to do my best for this party and for liberty. And so I don't want to fight for factionalism as a presidential candidate if I were one. Like I don't think that saying I'm the so-and-so caucus candidate is helpful because I don't think having a one party rule within a, within a party, like one caucus rule is really, it's leaving talent on the table and it's hurting feelings. And, and I know, Oh, fuck your feelings or whatever. Right. I'm sorry to be blue on a podcast, but you know, uh, we don't have the FCC here. We're good. Yeah. But <laughs> the truth is, is like, you know, it does, it isolates people. So we want to make sure everyone has a voice. And I would hope that whatever LNC we have in the year 2024, when we are nominating a presidential candidate is one that is diverse as the party is. That isn't just all collectively voting one way or the other. That's actually like taking the time to look at the candidates who are running for inter-party office. What are they bringing to the table? How much are they going to fundraise for the party? How much organization have they done in their states, their local affiliates? That's what I want to see. And if you're somebody, I don't care what caucus you're from. If you can come to me and be like, hey, I helped organize X number of affiliates. I fundraised this much for my state party. And I helped make sure that we got this program off the ground to help local libertarians win an election. Hey, man, I'm apt to support you if you just sit down with me. But if you're like, vote for me because this paddle says so, that doesn't really inspire me. I want to hear from you, not from your slate. I want to hear from you because ultimately... We are a party of individuals. We are an individual party of individual people who support individual rights. And I don't believe in just collectivizing our candidates and, and collectivizing our opinions. And I believe we're a party as diverse as the world is because that's the way liberty is. You And I tell people all the time, libertarian is not about left versus right. It is about your right to be left alone mm -hmm. from government. That's it. And as long as we can broadly agree upon that, we should be cool with working with each other, regardless of our ideology. Who's the best at organizing? Who's the best at fundraising? Who's the best at helping candidates? Who's the best at growing membership? Who's going to put a newsletter out? Who's going to do this? That's what we're looking for. Whatever your talent is, apply it there. But don't put people on the sidelines just because they aren't part of your wing of the party. I think that is something that is self-destructive, and it's and it's and it's really led to a uh a downslide in our party that we need to recover from really do before 2024 well said um i agree 
I kind of have a I kind of have a question that kind of follows up on that, but it's more about external. So let, let's talk about like post nomination. Let's say you take the exploratory committee, you turn it into a full campaign, you run for the nomination, and you you get it. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of people, as you know, in the third party independent space that I think would align around a libertarian candidate in a way that we haven't seen in a long time. The reason I say that is because I've, I've built a lot of relationships in the last couple of years with uh, the people that run the forward party. The person that runs the forward party's political director is a East Tennessee resident. She's a friend of mine. And she, they're not planning to run a, a, a presidential campaign at all. Like the forward party has no intention to run a presidential campaign. They want to run, they want to endorse another candidate, um, an independent candidate. So like, what do you think you could do as a, as a, like, let's say you get the nomination, a libertarian candidate to reunite that independent third party non-duopoly block around the actual LP? Well, a big, uh, a big issue that I would use in the campaign, obviously, and something that I would I certainly think would attract the forward party is I'm a big ranked choice voting supporter. I'm somebody who is fighting for their number one issue. And if they're going to be trying to endorse a candidate for president, it ought to be somebody who's, who is espousing their number one issue. And I'm not, a, again, not a Johnny come lately to ranked choice voting either. I've been supporting it all through my campaign for Senate. Even when I was uh, you know, running previously in other offices, I always supported that idea. And so... Uh, you know, I think what is it the the forward party? They got like quarter of a million people on their email list. I think uh, I would, if I were the nominee for this party, be wanting to sit down with the forward party and say, "Hey, let's sit down and have a forum. And if you guys broadly agree with my ranked choice voting platform, uh, let's go ahead and get me endorsed and let's get my name in front of your two hundred fifty thousand activists and let's get them activated towards something that is breaking up the duopoly in real time uh, and and giving them their first taste of a fifty state campaign." that can break down the duopoly one piece at a time and uh, and certainly fight for referendums in states across the country for ranked choice voting. You'll have a 50 state candidate who is whatever state you guys can get it on the ballot will be saying vote for uh, referendum number whatever in your state and saying, let's get out and vote for that. And something that is localized and can help change maybe a few states towards ranked choice voting in the next election. Uh, and perhaps, and if you're, you know, uh, and broadly speaking, let's help those libertarian candidates on the down ballot who want to talk about ranked choice voting and let's activate those people to get out and door knock for those local candidates too. Like, I think, again, we don't want to leave, we don't want to leave independents on the table because they're the largest pool of voters and some of them are looking for a place to call home. And maybe again, they're not a libertarian on hundred percent of the issues, but if they're a libertarian on, you know, uh, more than they are Republicans or Democrats and we're the best option going for them, we need to present that best option in a way that, that makes them feel comfortable voting for us and activated and organizing with us. Uh, because if we do, that's just more volunteers that can help us. And one of the things I, I, if you ask any libertarian affiliate, any libertarian campaign across the country, what's the biggest thing that you need? They'll say volunteers, people to help do the work, people to help organize. I just got back from Mississippi and many Mississippi libertarians are like, man, we wanna grow our affiliate, but we just kind of don't know how to organize and we don't have enough manpower to get it done. Well, if we presented a really good campaign for president in 2024 that that makes the forward party folks feel happy, they might be willing to say, you know what, let's put in some man hours and help these guys affiliate and grow a little bit. And here's some of our best practices that you guys can use. And, oh, we're having an event. Let's invite the libertarians to come table, you know, whatever. And like if we form those positive relationships, I think that's something that will help the party and be more healthy overall in the years and decades to come. We want to continue to be relevant, not just in the next two years, four years, but the next 20 or 40 years. So, you know, I think that's something that can help us broadly speaking, and we don't have to abandon our principles to do it.
Not one bit. Nice. I like it. What, you know, I, I like to look, I like results. I like looking at data and saying, we're progressing, we're regressing. What can we learn from this data? Who's voting for us? Who isn't voting for us? What, why, why would you do better than the Gary Johnson campaign or the George Jorgensen campaign? What would you do differently? What, you know, how do you feel like you can improve on those results? Well, I want to say like organizationally speaking, one of the reasons why I announced as early as I did this exploratory committee is to get the, the pieces in place for if I do want to roll this out as a full-fledged campaign, I'm doing it early enough to have impact. One of the things you always ask libertarians, they always like, I wish our candidates ran sooner. Well, here I am doing the thing. And, you know, everybody's like, well, I wish so-and-so was running. They're not right now. And if you're you know, if you're waiting for somebody to come in at the last minute and save you, don't do that. Like, start getting involved now. Hey, man, if you're like, I like Chase, but if so-and-so jumps in, I'm going to think about jumping to them. I don't care. Help me now, dude. Like, like, and if, and if you find out like, hey, my my golden boy has come into the campaign and I want to jump with them. Well, you've already learned what it's like to be on a campaign. You've already kind of learned like some practices that you can say, hey, this kind of worked for my guy. And but ultimately, I hope I've done a good job to keep you there and to keep you going Chase is serious and he wants to keep it going. But, you know, at the end of the day, I'm running early enough for people to see me. And that's something that some of the other candidates didn't do. I already have professionalized branding. I won't be like running to the, you know, oh, my God, I got to change my my image and my template to be high def and looking great. Oh, I'm not going to change it again like three weeks later. Like I'm already set. Like I have a good logo. I'm stuck with it. We're going to look great. Um, so I'm already kind of doing those early steps. But as far as how am I going to get more voters out there? One of the things I want to touch on is activating the Gen Z voter. You know, uh, we just saw in the midterms, Gen Z voters started really coming out in the huge numbers for the first time for their first election where a lot of them can vote. And they came out in a higher number than millennials did at the same age range. And so it, that tells me that this generation is getting more politically active and more politically activated earlier than my generation did. And so we need to be reaching out and touching those 18 to 25 year olds right now with their first vote for president, because if we can and get them to vote outside of the two party the first time for the rest of their lives, the rest of their voting lives, they're going to go, hey, who other than the Republican and Democrat is running? Is there a libertarian running? Is there an independent running? And if we condition them, but if they get stuck in the condition of voting for R&D, their first election, it's harder to pull them out of that cycle. It took Barack Obama not fulfilling his promises to end wars to pull me out of the two party cycle. You know, because that's what pulled me out. I was an anti-war Democrat because broadly speaking, I thought, oh, there's only two choices. And then when he got elected and he didn't do shit to end the wars, I became apolitical. I thought, I'm, I'm not going to vote anymore. And then luckily for me, uh, Libertarian Party of Georgia was at the Pride Festival in 2010. And John Mons literally, okay, I'm not even, I, I don't know who's going to be able to see this, who else, but it, I had a drink in my hand like this. I was walking around the, the party, enjoying myself with some music. And I see this tent libertarian party of georgia and i'm kind of like trying to read it in the distance and i see a guy going hey come over here and he's waving me to come over and that was john mons in 2010 so luckily i ran into him and he made me a libertarian because i always was one but he he introduced it to me but i was conditioned to vote rd and i probably if i did vote was going to vote within them it took it took literally some uh somebody to be a basically a war criminal to get me out of it so I don't want that to have to happen for each and every person to break out of it and become a libertarian. I'd rather they just get it right off the bat when they're first time voters. John Mons is awesome. He's just also running for state Senate right now. I heard. So uh, if you go to, I believe it's johnhmons.com. Uh, if you want to donate to his campaign, early voting has already started and uh, the election is on the 31st. He's been trying to put out ads in every newspaper in the region for the last two weeks. 
uh, needs help doing that. But also if you're in uh, North Georgia, Southern Alabama, South Georgia, come on out to Cairo and become a precinct captain for him. Get connected to the campaign and help sign wave on election day. And God willing, John Mons, man, if just one John Mons can get elected to the state Senate, you're going to see so much libertarianism spewing out of the gold <laughs> dome in Atlanta. We just won't be able to handle it. It's like when Trump was like, you know, we're going to do so much winning. You're going to get sick and tired of winning. If John Mons gonna le- gets elected, you'll see so much liberty. You'll, you'll, you won't get tired of liberty, but you'll just be seeing so much liberty that you've never seen before in the state of Georgia. So get out and support him. He's, he is amazing. And, uh, you know, without him, I wouldn't be here. I, Jonathan, I know we're getting close to time, so I don't want to spend too much, but I do have one question that's kind of a weird question about the way that the LP's uh, nomination system works. And um, so just briefly, I'm sure you're aware, as somebody who's been in the LP for, for a while, that we have this weird originalist kind of nominating process where you can become the nominee for president or vice president, and somebody else that you have no desire to run with could be your vice president. So hypothetically, go back to the factionalism conversation that we had 15 minutes ago. Um, You're placed with somebody who you may not politically agree with as a vice presidential candidate, or you decide to flip as vice president for some reason. I'm not saying that's going to happen. How would you deal with that? Like, how would you deal with, um, you know, working with the, uh, you know, somebody you might have a lot of disagreements with, or you might not agree with, like, how do you deal with that kind of dynamic? Cause that's a yeah, really so let's, let's, LP thing. <laughs> let's answer the question kind of backwards there. So VP first, right? Like uh, if someone wins the nomination who I just know, I will not absolutely be able to work with and contribute the best to a national campaign. And I would be a detriment. I wouldn't run for vice president. I would say, you know what, I'm going to take a step back. I appreciate it. I'm going to vote for whoever it is, but just, we don't get along well, or I'm not that person. I'm not the person they want. I'll take a step back. And I I think, honestly, in our party, the people who run for VP sometimes do need to go to the presidential candidate who wins and be like, do you want me or do you can you can you can you stand me? Um, Because maybe that would be just a friendly way to handle that. But as far as top of the ticket, let's say I get somebody for VP that I don't want or who's ideologically different from me. I would still listen to their input every single day. I would never make them campaign on something they do not believe in. Let's say they are pro-life. I am pro-choice. I will never make them campaign on the issue of abortion. I will handle that issue myself and be able to defend that myself as myself. I won't ask you to go in front of pro-life people and defend me. I would ask you, you know, to have your own opinion and understand and say, we have a difference of opinion on that. And that's okay. Um, you know, that that's just the truth of it. Um, and I would ask that person to help me as best they can uh, and ask them, how do they want to help? What areas do they want to talk about? What area of policy do they want? Do they feel passionate about that we agree upon that they can feel comfortable campaigning on? Because I want to make sure that no matter who my running mate would be, right, that we're doing the best job we can to present the best job of presenting libertarianism. And if that means that they are a little, like, let's say I'm a minarchist, they're a little more anarchist than me, cool. And that's comfortable. And I can honestly say, hey, we have both in our party and on our ticket. And isn't that a good thing? And that's something that I don't, I don't feel necessarily, you know, uh, it, it would present its own challenges, right? If I don't get my handpicked person, but that's the name of the game. And that's the way our party works. And I have to be comfortable with the way our party works because them's be, them's is the rules and I can't change them. So, uh, you know, it's always been, it's always been a weird dynamic. May the delegates have mercy on my soul, right? (laughs) If I have somebody that I really want who the delegates like, like, may they pick them. Right. But if not, 
Hey man, let's do it. Like uh, I, the value will be in 2024. It'll be an in-person convention. It won't be mm-hmm. like 2020 where Joe Jorgensen and all the other VP nominees have to like figure out what they want to do on zoom. Yeah. <laughs> you know what It'll I mean? A little bit more conventional in that yeah. way. And, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, uh, it'll be, it'll be a fun thing. And may the delegates pick who they think is best. And I'm, and I'm hoping to get a lot of new delegates and a lot of old delegates and a lot of current delegates back out to select, you know, if I go through with this Oliver for president, uh, because again, I don't want to fight all day long. I want to fight the state. That's who I want to fight all day long. If, if people want to fight internally and whatever, cool. Uh, I'm sure there's internal fights in the Republican and Democratic parties that I don't have to care about or worry about either. Uh, so, you know, that's where I'm kind of placing my head right now. May the best candidate win in 2024. I, I like it. Okay, so we're going to kind of end uh, here on a few like quick fire questions where we we throw a question or topic at you. You give us a three or four sentence response uh, and then we'll close it out. We We were hoping to keep it between 30 and 40 minutes. We were way over that, but... I love it because it's it's been an interesting conversation. So I'm going to throw a few topics at you. You just kind of give a few a few uh, a few responses. We had a few members say, "Hey, I want you to ask Chase about this." So we'll throw these out there. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what do you think of Georgism or or, or uh, LVT land value tax? Um, you know, I, I I I've looked into it. Honestly, I want a world where we have the lowest amount of taxes as possible. And I always think if you give government another mechanism for taxation, sometimes that can be a backfire. But overall, um, you know, I have a lot of my friends who are kind of uh, more left libertarian on the spectrum who like the idea of it. And I would welcome to look at I, I haven't studied the idea enough to really have a super well-formed information, but I would love to uh, hear from folks and about why that is better than the standard property tax that we have now. I mean, I think property taxes suck. In a lot of the ways things get funded through property taxes suck. But, uh, you know, I am not the most well-funded on uh, value or what is it, land value tax. And, you know, that's just, I'll be honest with you, you know, but I, I've heard a little bit about it here and there. And it always kind of just sounds intriguing because, you know, I, uh, yeah, that's my answer. I don't really have a there, whole lot. There you, there you go. Uh, proportional representation. Proportional representation. So like uh, at the electoral college, like, uh, or in the House of Representatives, where it's proportion, it's it's uh, uh, instead of instead of having uh, each district nominate yes. candidates, so like doing statewide and doing it that way, that would be very cool. Um, let's see if one state can do that. Like, right? Like, I I would love to see an experimentation on that, just like we have the ranked choice experiment in Alaska and Maine. Let's find a state that wants to pass that via referendum and see how it goes. I I think it's a very cool idea. You know, uh, we. Wouldn't change a lot in Georgia as, as divided as we are as like a purple state, but. Uh, debt ceiling. It, we just hit it this today. Yeah. If I could wave a magic wand, if I was the president today, I would say there is no passing the debt ceiling unless my next budget is deficit cut in half. And in two years, we need to be deficit neutral and balanced. So unless you're going to willing to get me to balance budget in two years, I will not sign an extension of the debt ceiling. Uh, federal ballot access law. Uh, I, I don't support a federal ballot access law because uh, states are all different and there's just so many jurisdictions and, and little minor differences. Uh, I think, you know, that's not every, every county is their own election, so we can't federalize everything like that. Uh, Josh or Danielle, do you guys have any uh, any quick questions? Danielle, you first. Oh, she's muted. 
She's muted and she's stuttering. <laughs> of course, the the one time all night we've had perfectly perfectly yeah. streams, everything perfect quality, and then the one moment. All right, can you go for it? Nope, can't. I hear can't it. hear you, uh, Josh. <laughs> why don't you ask your question? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, no, Danielle, um, why don't you leave and then come back in, and then yeah. I'll, I'll bring you back in. But Josh, go for it. <laughs> so I'll I'll uh, just again quick fire answer. So I know this could be a really long question for libertarians, but what do you think the role of government should be? proper role of government uh to secure people's contract to secure their property and their inherent human liberty via uh basic court structures i'm i'm a minarchist so if we could get government there that would be pretty optimal to me understood oh and national defense national National makes sense last question for me um top three issues that matter to you like your top three issues personally uh criminal justice uh ending the drug war and right now comprehensive immigration reform Mm. Uh, a lot of people are getting hurt by all of those. Okay. And I guess since we're still waiting on Danielle, I'll do one more. What's the biggest challenge that the Libertarian Party is facing right now? Overcoming negative stereotypes and professional marketing and imaging from affiliates and candidates. Noted. Here's one for you. We'll do one more. Yeah. If there's one, if there's one piece of advice to give a can to give any Libertarian Party candidate that they're like, hey, Chase, I want to run for office, what would you tell them? Do not be afraid to knock on doors and talk to strangers. I love you, it. I you love have it. to be willing to do that. Otherwise, help another candidate do something else. The, the candidate, candidate themselves yeah. has to do that. The candidates can't meet their constituents. They're probably not going to win. <laughs> Exactly. They're, they're very common sense, but libertarians forget that sometimes, especially at the local level. I've, I've seen that. Um, good. Good deal. Well, maybe Danielle. Uh, <laughs> oh, there oh, she is. Here we go. I think she's, she's coming back in. She's, she's, she's circling. There we go. Can you you want to type? Maybe you, I can't hear you. Why don't you oh. type in your question? <laughs> I can. Oh, hear me? Oh, there we go. We heard you for a second. We did mm. hear you for a second. But then you turn into a robot. <laughs> <laughs> well, you might have to wrap us up here, uh, Mr. I, I will. Thank you, Chase, for coming on. I appreciate it. Um, it's 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 great to have great voices in Liberty like you. On a scale out there. And, of uh, one to ten. I see her ten. question. Oh, I see oh, her oh, question. She's got one more. On a scale of one to ten, how much do I want Justin Amash as a running mate? I think Justin Amash would be an asset to any campaign. I think any libertarian would be stupid to not want him involved at some level in the campaign. So as a running man, I think he'd be a great guy. Uh, he seems to have a level head. He knows all about the legislative process. And really, if you want to know what a vice president does, uh, they're the president of the Senate, essentially. So they have to have some sort of knowledge of the legislative process. So he would be a good running mate for my, for me or for just about anybody, I think. Preach. Awesome. I love it. Well, we will now actually close, close out. Thank you so much, Chase, for coming on. I, I appreciate it. Uh, it's great. To, it's great. Like I said, it's, it's, it, there's no harm in great candidates being out there, putting out the Liberty message and getting out and, and speaking to people. So I appreciate all the hard work you did at the Georgia election. I appreciate all the hard work you did now. Uh, and thanks for, thanks for coming on and, and good luck. Thank you. See you soon.